creation myths fuel us around the globe from generation to generation. Here in the heart of Georgia, our creation story goes back through 10 millennia of culture along the fall line to the Okmulgee Mounds, a memorial gently preserved by the Muscogee. Our creation myth also includes moments of profound sadness and human horror. Macon has the architecture it does because Sherman spared the city in the Civil War as black Maconites waited far too long for freedom. When I think about the particular devastation of this year, of plague and sorrow, of fighting back and feeling alone, and I think about what dreams we hold for the next cycle around the sun, I think about the story of Pandora. Many people may not know that I'm a secret classicist, and I spent years in school reciting Latin poetry and romanticizing Ovid. The part about Pandora that many people do know is that she was the first human woman and Zeus gave her a jar as a revenge tactic. And people know that when she opened the jar, it released a litany of evil onto humanity. Just terrors keep going and escaping out of the jar one after another so fast that it was just impossible to stop. And that's how this year felt. Like there was just one crisis after another, like it was apocryphal, unceasing. And in the face of that, Pandora, just terrified by what she had done, just goes ahead and closes the box. But the writer, Hesiod, leaves the ending somewhat vague. He says, Only hope remained there, in an unbreakable home within under the rim of the great jar and did not fly out the door. As pestilence and famine and crime are swirling around, hope remains almost vacuum sealed against these terrors. It's protected. Fragile, yes, but not killed off. And while it still remains in the jar, It seems that it is for another day. And these stories you will hear today are full of emotional peaks and valleys, all of which relate to a more personal creation myth. The mythos of discovering oneself. And wow, there is disgust and guilt and shame and all manner of horrors. There is also hope sealed away, looking for a way out at some point. Perhaps we don't even know when it will be released even now. But I'm filled with hope. And I'm Julia Rubens. And I'm Corin Young. This is The Heartbeat of Georgia, a storytelling podcast from Storytellers Macon in collaboration with the Grand Opera House. If you're just joining us, Welcome. We recorded a blend of the best stories simmering from all around middle Georgia, and we are throwing them together for you. Hopefully, it will hit you like a warm, bubbling stew this cold winter. We recorded these stories live in a heightened presentation at the Grand Opera House, and today we have two of them for you from our November event called Kings and Queens. It's actually one of the brightest spots that I'm looking forward to most in 2021. Hopefully, more people returning to live gathering places together safely. Part one, your wish upon a star. So, Corin, if you could wish one thing upon a star for yourself and one thing for our community, what would it be? Oh, Julia, I am just ready 
to relax. I'm ready to breathe through a day and not have to worry about what catastrophe is coming next. And Julia, honestly, quite frankly, I'm exhausted. I am, I'm ready to be less exhausted about the what's next. I'd like to plan for something. I'd like to uh, enjoy. I have a new granddaughter coming into the world and I don't want her to have to see all of this, just adults being exhausted about what's coming up next. Personally, I am a person who enjoys having dinner parties. I enjoy going out to dinner. I enjoy having a barbecue. And quite frankly, it's exhausting not being able to do that. And I am a masker. I I mask up. I do the thing. And I am just so looking forward to hugging my friends, hugging my families, meeting my new granddaughter without chaos. I just want it to go nicely. I am just tired of being exhausted. For myself... Uh, I want to get to a more consistent schedule. So this is my wish pretty much every year uh, is like, okay, I'm always going to wake up at this time. I'm always going to go to this pure bar class every day. Like I'm going to have really consistent, et cetera, et cetera, all day. I never do it, but it is my New Year's resolution every year is consistent schedule. And what I want for our community is that I just want more people to really embrace where they live. Um, I think that there's been so much violence this year in Macon and it's fed into this weird negative cycle where people roll their eyes on Facebook and just pretend that this area is doomed and that doesn't make it better. It's just disengaging. So I'm just hoping for more opportunities for healing, healing our bodies with everything going on um, in the public health crisis, but also um, just how we feel about each other as a community and just connecting more so. Uh, so there's this joke that the pandemic really fed into the introvert and I am I'm generally an extrovert and and I hadn't realized that my whole first 45 years of life was completely our world was completely scheduled around my needing to be an extrovert uh, and I really do miss that but I want to talk about our first storyteller and it and it's all about transformation their story is called ghost ironically because their name is Angel Colquitt Angel is a Macon native and journalism student they're also a current intern with us uh, when they stepped on the mic to begin preparing to tell this story we were all honestly shocked by its power power and wry humor. Prepare to see Angel's presence as much stronger than ghostly. Part two, Ghost. My name's Angel Colquitt and I was born a ghost. Now, before you get up all in your feelings or whatever, I wasn't dead or something like that. So you can also stop your hastily written text messages to my mother and apology. It's fine. I was just, there was something about it where I just didn't get what everybody else was supposed to be getting. I haunted my life as a child while other little girls were picking their crushes In the schoolyard, I was mimicking their movements, trying to play along. I, of course, picked all of my crushes based on hairstyle alone. I thought that was normal. I guess someone had shown me the Beatles at some point and been like, yeah, that's attractive because suddenly every year it was the same bowl cut. Pre-K, I'm, I'm not kidding. Pre-K, it was this blonde kid named Andy. Kindergarten, first grade, same school, kid named Trent. Third grade, no, second grade, I went for the pastor's son. Ginger, bull cut. So then my mom pulls me out. 
she's homeschooling me. The thing about when you're homeschooled is no one asks you who your crush is because the only other boy you're interacting with is your little brother, and we're not freaks. So a few years pass. I don't have to worry about crushes. And then I'm 13. I meet a kid online. I meet a boy online. That was a horrible decision. Oh, my God. But 14, we decide, okay, we're dating. Whatever the heck that dating involves whenever you've never seen each other before. And, I mean, we like the same books. We read the same books. We watch the same movies. We like the same actors. Of course I love them. And whenever I'm 15 and he tells me that sometimes he doesn't know why, but he hates me, I say, okay, that's fine. I understand. I mean, who's to tell me that that's not normal? I mean, sometimes I hate myself too, so I... 17, we meet in person, first time. We spend two weeks going to hotels in Orlando, Atlanta, Savannah. No, my parents did not know. Dad, I am so sorry. <laughs> and... We had both changed a lot. I cut my hair, I grew it out again, I cut it, I grew it out again. And I started driving, he started a new school, I started college, he cheated on me with his best friend and I developed an eating disorder in response. She was just so pretty with her soft lips and her nose that tilted up just a little bit and one look at her and one look at me and well, I was a goner. He stayed with me. Someone had hurt me really bad that year, and so guilt, it tore him apart the way that guilt often does, so he just couldn't get up the guts to leave me, and he stayed. And so I found myself in those two weeks following this path that I always followed, asking these questions that I always asked when he was crying in the bathroom over the ways that he had hurt me. Do you feel loved? Am I good enough for you? Do you feel wanted? Have I molded myself into the lover that you desired? Do you feel held? goes back home. <sighs> time passes and every time that he shouts at me, every time that he doesn't even call me my own name, it's fine. Because at least you feel loved, right darling? You feel held. You at least feel wanted. Right? 18. I meet my very best friend. We'd actually been following each other on social media for years, I think. And um, we talked to each other. They'd made art for me. And we had talked about the same exact Target closing. You guys know the one, the one we miss so dearly. We had talked about the same one, and we're like, wow, that really sucks that that Target closed in my city. That's, you know, somewhere in the south in the same time zone as you. And um, we didn't realize we went to the same school. And they become my confidant. 
And by the time that we meet each other, we both look like hell. Their fiance would later say that this was the first time he had ever seen someone so willingly close to death. That was how small I was compared to my friends. Every time that he snapped at me, every time that he shouted, every time that he said, will you just shut up? I would go to their dorm and cry. And then finally, I leave him. Five years in, I leave him. Two weeks after my birthday where my best friend held me by the face and said, this is going to hurt like hell, but you have got to do it. You have got to leave him. And so I do. And for a second, I really do think that it hurts. And then I realize, I can't feel anything at all. In truth, I had mourned this relationship since before it even began. It had been dead to me for over five years. It had never been alive. I start wandering the same halls, picking up the same habits and apparition. I continue the same things that I always did. The first man that gives me attention, well, he must be the man for me. Does he feel wanted? Does he feel loved? Does he feel held? I don't care how he treats me. Does he feel? Do I make him feel? And then a month into that relationship, I call my friend again. I've got questions now. Something feels rotten and there's no way that I can explain it. So I call them. Yo, man, what's up? Hey, so like weird question. I mean, you don't you don't have to answer if you don't feel like it. But um, do you ever just not want to look your boyfriend in the face? Do you ever? Sorry. <laughs> um, like when you're alone with him and y'all like making out, do you not want him to take your shirt off or touch you in any single way at all? Bro. I mean, I'm just curious, like, you know, does the idea of marrying him make you want to vomit? Does the idea of marrying any man make you feel like you will be trapped in a life that you never intended to live forever? And they, in all their wisdom, go, no, but like, if you're not having a good time, you can leave. <laughs> I can leave? So I leave him and I continue, but now there's no halls to haunt. I've never been single for this long and I've never had to check and even see whose house I was in in the first place. And so 19, I go on a date with a girl. I lose track of time. I want to hear her talk for hours. I go in and it's daylight. I leave and it's dark and it's eight o'clock and I can't remember how long I was in the coffee shop on campus, but God, I just can't stop thinking about how soft her hair is and how nice it might be to run my fingers through it. And then she ghosts me and I'm like, 
oh, it's cool, it's fine. I wasn't even looking for a relationship anyways. Like I didn't have the time. Who has the time for a relationship? I'm an undergrad. I do things like study and work hard. Um, it's fine, I'm fine, everything's good. And then she texts me a week later, hey, um, my family's moving, sorry I haven't texted, it's been kinda weird. Um, I'm like, if you wanna, we're going down to my new house, if you wanna spend spring break, yes, oh my God, I have a bag packed, I asked my dad, he said I can go, I didn't ask, I just said I was going, when do we leave? The first night, or the first couple of nights, it's a little bit of a blur. We watch fried green tomatoes together and we're sitting far apart from one another, afraid of what it means to scoot just a little bit closer. And the next night we watch Carol and she is beside me and her arm brushes against mine and it feels like, it feels like something warm, like maybe, Maybe something is changing or maybe I have been different all along and just never realized it. And she has the audacity to go, hey, if I'm making you uncomfortable, just tell me and I'll like move away. And I'm, no, oh my God, no. Can't you see what you're doing to me? Can't you see how you're making me feel? And not only that, can't you see how you're making me feel? Can you move over? Can you move closer? I'll take anything. The next night, we're watching But I'm a Cheerleader together, and I can see that she wants to ask me something. It weighs down on her. It sits on her tongue, dragging her into silence. Finally, though, she asks me, can I kiss you? Ma'am. I am in a coffin and I have been banging my fists on the lid and everything has been cold and dark and I didn't even realize it until about three days ago. Can you kiss me? Can I breathe again? And I, in all my wisdom, go, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, it's cool. That's cool, that's fine. When she kisses me, her lips are soft, her brown eyes are enchanting, and sometimes, I didn't realize this until last night, they're green. They change. Her freckles, I wanna count every one of them. I want to spend my entire life finding out the different ways that her face can express emotion. The air is sweet on my tongue. Her lips, her chapstick is cherry and... <laughs> When she pulls away, it's like she has dragged me from the grave and I am alive and I can feel things. And then we go back to the movie like nothing happened. A few minutes later, I'm like, sorry if you said something, I'm just processing the fact that you just kissed me. It's a bit much for me, just give me a second. And she leaves to brush her teeth. And before we retire to our separate rooms for the night, I call my friend. You didn't tell me it was supposed to feel this way. Bro, what? You didn't tell me her lips would be so soft. You didn't tell me that you would want something, that someone could touch you and you wouldn't feel dirty, that you would feel something, something beautiful and pure and soft and gentle. 
You didn't tell me any of this. And they, God bless them, it was probably two in the morning. In all their wisdom, once again, go, bro, oh my God, you're a fucking lesbian. That was awesome. When they had their first rehearsal and they told the story and they ended on that iconic line where their friend called and said, I guess you're just an effing lesbian and stopped and said, well, I just have to write an ending. And we all looked around at each other and said, no, that's the ending. You had all this moments of questioning and you found the answer. And that's all we needed was that finding the answer. It was so wrapped up in such a neat bow and I'll never forget that moment. Um, What did you think when you first heard Angel? My experience with Angel had been uh, them as an intern. They were always very reliable. So there's a reliability that comes with being an intern. And when we were picking the the person that would sort of represent the base, um, I had no idea what we were going to get. And and what I thought was a very pragmatic and reliable person turned out to be one of the most creative people on the stage. And we'll be back after a short break. Startup Studios is an art gallery with a craft beer bar. We are also an art studio that holds several making artists who work in a variety of media such as ceramics, glass, metal, and painting. We are located right next to the Rose Hill Cemetery, and what we offer is a welcoming environment for anyone. You can come take an art lesson with our studio artists or just walk in, get some craft beer, and enjoy our art DIY activities. If you're an art lover, please consider joining our Koozie Club. It's $50 per year, which gives you 10% off any art purchase, 15% off for selected art classes, and 20% off for all drinks throughout the year. Part three, what I hope for. Thanks for sticking with us through the break. So with a new year comes a sense of wonder. And Lord knows that we need it after 2020. And we hit the streets in Macon to ask people what they hope for in 2021. My hope is that we find a way past all the virus and can get back to things that make me truly happy, like going to concerts, seeing bands, playing music, and watching great shows. This year, I would say I have hope for more peace and unity in America. I would say more, you know, of a handle on this pandemic and everything returning to normal. And for me, myself personally, like I'm graduating and everything. So just, you know, that I hit the ground running and I begin my career and my new life, a new part of my life. So lots of things to be hopeful for. You know, one of the things I hope for in this upcoming year is that I'll be able to see my nieces and nephews again. But especially, I'm actually really excited because I've been like hyping uh, Macon for so long to have them come here uh, and see Macon. Especially my one niece is really looking forward to coming to see the Tubman Museum. So I actually hope that I get to kind of show off Macon to my, my family, uh, <laughs> you know, in the coming year. I'm uh, wanting to get out of my everyday, um, you know, work and home life and start traveling again and um, to go to some different places to explore and uh, meet different people because I miss that connection and traveling and getting to go places like going abroad or even going a couple of cities over. So that's um, what I'm most hopeful for is just the ability to get out and get connected. 
my greatest hope is to find like a return to normalcy. Uh, this past year was a little too much of hurry up and wait. And so I want to find a return to normalcy, being able to kind of find myself again. But then also it'd be really cool to get like a gigantic ball pit of puppies. I think that'd make everyone happy. So if we could in Macon create a puppy pit where we just a lot of cuddling. Part four. It was a dark and stormy night. We went out on a beautiful day in mid-December, but here to talk about a not-so-beautiful day is Angie Coggins. So no doubt about it, Angie is definitely a spitfire. She's hilarious, she has great fashion sense, and will say out loud what everyone is only just kind of thinking. She's a recently retired public defender, and she actually spent over 30 years in Houston County's legal system. Uh, But now, she spends her time as a devoted fan of Macon Pickleball and of her daughter, Devlin. Here's her story, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night. It was a dark and stormy night. Just kidding. I don't remember if it was dark and stormy outside, but it sure got dark and stormy inside the kitchen of my childhood home in Warner Robins, Georgia. You see, from childhood to adult years, I was mostly a daddy's girl. My daddy made the best pancakes and waffles in the world. He built me a mini bike. He took me to college softball tryouts. He taught me how to take good care of a car. And he made me laugh with the silly things he would say. In high school, my best friend would come over on a weekend, spend the night, stay up late. My dad would wander into the living room while we were there watching TV and he'd say, better go to bed. 6 a.m. comes early, and we would revolt. We don't have to be up at 6 a.m. And he would dryly respond, I know you don't have to get up, but 6 a.m. does come early. (laughs) He called my mom sugar babe, and he would say to her, teasingly but lovingly, sugar babe, you sure do have a nice pair of legs. Too bad they go up and make an ass of themselves. He was a good man, and I loved him so much. It's January 1993, and I am sitting at the small oval wooden table where I had sat so many times while growing up. But now I was grown, and I had a job. My job was in Perry, I lived in Macon, and of course my parents lived in Warner Robins. So once or twice a month, on my way back from work, I would go home to have dinner with my mom and dad. Then, just like now, I was gay. But they didn't know it. Deep down, I think they knew But as long as it remained unspoken, I remained a straight, single, independent woman who just hadn't met the right guy. (laughs) Yeah. Now, mind you, in 1993, I had been living with the same female 
roommate for about five years. And my parents thought the world of her until that dark and stormy night when I had to speak my truth. I remember it so well. Somehow after dinner, the topic of homosexuality came up. It seems there was a guy in my parents' neighborhood that my dad thought might be gay. My dad was equating pedophiles with homosexuals. So I explained to him that statistically, straight dudes were way more likely to be pedophiles than gay dudes. And then it happened. My daddy, with his back to me, was standing at the kitchen sink washing the dishes. And my mom was wiping the stove. And these words just bubbled up out of my mouth. I have to tell you something. I'm gay. My daddy, the man I loved and adored, my daddy, without missing a beat and without even turning around, simply said, get out. My mom began crying and wailing that it couldn't be true. I, I, I stood up to leave because daddy had said, get out. But my mom was yelling that if I left, I could never come back. She was refusing to believe what I said, and she wanted me to take it back. Kind of like a gay mulligan, I guess. It all got kind of blurry then, so I don't remember exactly what all my mom said, but I very clearly remember the only two words my dad spoke that night. That was my parents' response to my truth. Several weeks later, my daddy was diagnosed with terminal cancer. As the months passed, my daddy decided to stop taking chemo. He got sicker, and he got weaker, and in October, the one who had been told to get out became the go-to. I took, if you will, a leave of absence from my then-partner and moved home to take care of my daddy. I'm so glad I did. He never accepted my gayness, but every day, and I mean every day from October until January 7th, 1994, my daddy told me he loved me. And somehow, during that time, he arranged for my best friend to go out and buy three different amethyst rings. Amethyst is his birthstone. He gave those rings to my mom, my sister, and I as Christmas gifts. Inside the box that held my ring, there was a tiny piece of a slip of paper on which he had written, Angie, I love you, Dad. I still wear the ring. I still have the box. And I still have that precious slip of paper. 
after I told my parents I was gay, my mom was very angry. After my dad died at only age 57, my mom was angry at the world. And she unloaded a lot of her anger, and by a lot, I mean all of her anger in my direction. She most certainly did not treat me like royalty. But my big brother and his then wife did. They made sure that my mom knew that they loved me and my partner, and we would always be welcome in their home. Excuse me, and that was a very big deal because not long after my daddy died, my mom moved out to my brother's place. I am a big fan of my big brother. It would take way more than a 10-minute talk to describe the complicated relationship that my mom and I shared for those 24 years post-truth. Suffice it to say, some people suggested that I just cut her out of my life. Suffice it to say, that was not an option for me. She was my mom, and no matter what, I loved her. When she moved back to Warner Robins, a weekly routine of Tuesdays with Cookie became part of my life. Cookie was my mother's nickname. Her real name was Cleo, but for some reason she hated that name. And if anyone other than her parents or her siblings dared to call her Cleo, she would threaten to slap them past Christmas. In 2013, Cookie began to show significant signs of dementia. She was hospitalized, and it became quite obvious that she could no longer live on her own. Once again, the one who 20 years earlier had been told to get out became the go-to. I was given the heartbreaking task of finding an assisted living facility for her. Now, Cookie was not well pleased. She called me incessantly to tell me that she wanted to go home. <sighs> cell phones. Ugh. <sighs> if I had known, she wouldn't have had a cell phone there at the facility, but I didn't know any better. So after about six months of dozens and dozens of phone calls, wherein she would say the same thing over and over again, because of course she didn't remember that she was making dozens and dozens of phone calls saying the same thing over and over again, I'd had enough. I took her back to the house on Mitteridge Drive. A home health agency was hired, uh, way too expensive and too unreliable to last for very long. And then fortunately, my niece Andrea and her husband Billy moved back to Georgia, moved in with Cookie, and stayed with her for about a year. They were very good to her. When they decided to buy their own home, Cookie had to go back into an assisted living facility. But this time, she had to go into the memory care unit. Cookie would ultimately reach a point where she would often fail to recognize me as her daughter. It was usually quite comical. I would go have lunch or dinner with mom at least 
once or twice a week. And as we would be sitting at the dining table, she would look at me and say, when is Angie coming to see me? And I would say, oh, she's after work today or she'll be here tomorrow. Then she would look at her friends around the dining table and proudly announce that I was her daughter, Angie, and I was a lawyer. Five minutes after that, she would look at me and say, when is Angie coming to see me? It was Groundhog Day every five minutes. Let me tell you, caring for somebody with dementia will teach you to improv in a hot minute. As many of my friends and family who are here tonight will tell you, Cookie Coggins was a stone cold trip. Despite the pain and the heartache, caring for her, taking her home on weekends, and being at her side when she drew her last breath was the greatest honor and privilege of my life. I miss her very much. At her funeral, I read some stanzas from a poem that a sweet friend had written in a sympathy card. My friend knew that one of Cookie's favorite things when home for a weekend was to sit on her gorgeous back porch and watch the birds in the backyard. The poem is by Emily Dickinson, considered royalty of the poetry world. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. In preparing for tonight's talk, I asked Miss Googly about the poem, and to my surprise, discovered a third and final stanza. Who knew? It goes like this. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. As I reflected on that poem and, and sat with its words while thinking about my dad, my mom, my family, and all that we experienced, I came to know what the words of that beautiful masterpiece mean to me. With hope, you find love. With hope, you have dignity. With hope, you are royalty. Just like our dear Lady Gaga, I am royalty, and so are each of you. Oh man, hearing that gave me chills on stage back in November. Now that we're headed into a new year, we hope you feel a new hope. Send us a voice memo, what you might be dreaming about in 2021 to storytellersmaking at gmail.com. Our next episode will be called Giving Birth and it'll feature artist Tiara Ponce and urban development expert Alex Morrison. Until then, keep speaking your truth. 
This is the heartbeat of Georgia. We also want to thank all of the people who contributed their hopes for 2021 at the Grand Opera House and Maniacs Axe Throwing here in beautiful downtown Macon, Georgia. The Heartbeat of Georgia is brought to you by Storytellers Macon in collaboration with the Grand Opera House for a limited series. All the music for the live event and this podcast is written and performed by Justin Cutway. Storytellers Macon believes that it is important for people to be able to share a part of themselves, and we believe that anyone can tell a story. Speak your truth. Storytellers Macon administers Pulse, the heartbeat of Macon, a nonprofit organization supporting grassroots projects. The Grand is a historic theater that serves as a vibrant community assembly resource for the citizens of Macon, Bibb County, and as the Performing Arts Center of Mercer University. The Grand seeks to champion excellence as the premier theatrical venue in central Georgia. We want to thank Grants Lounge, our home prior to COVID-19, and Startup Studios, our current outdoor stage, and where we are recording this podcast. The Heartbeat of Georgia is co-directed and produced by Corn Young and Julia Rubens, and engineered and edited by Aaron Lee with assistance from Brian Beck. Additional storytellers making board of directors are George Cobble, Kevin Bradley, Anissa Muhammad, Lauren Beatty, and Tina Hunt along with Angel Colquitt and Claire Rivera as our interns. Patrick Pritchard and Wendy Hamm advise this project. The production staff at the Grand Opera House includes Joe Patty, Julia Rubens, Nikki Vincent, and Bob Mavity. This program is supported in part by Georgia Council for the Arts through appropriations of the Georgia General Assembly and with funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. Further support comes from Macon Arts Alliance and the Community Foundation of Central Georgia. Tickets for our live event are at thegrandmakin.com. If you want to get more involved, you can find out more about Storytellers Macon at storytellersmacon.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Storytellers Macon. As always, speak your truth.